You're most likely familiar with the Ten Commandments in the Bible, stuff we generally take as good advice. Don't murder, don't steal, honor your parents, the list goes on. And those are just the first ten. There are actually a total of 613 commands, all given to ancient Israel, found in the first five books of the Bible, which in Hebrew are called the Torah. Now, the word Torah is usually translated in English as the law, because it has all of these laws in it. And as you read through them, you wonder, am I supposed to obey some of these, all of these? I mean, what's the purpose of the law? Well, that translation is kind of confusing because while the Torah has laws in it, the book itself is fundamentally a story about how God is creating new kinds of people who are fully able to love God and love others. And when Jesus taught about the Torah, he said that he was bringing that story to its fulfillment. So walk me through the story and how it's fulfilled. So the story begins with God creating humanity who rebelled. And God chooses Abraham to bless all of the nations through his family, who end up in slavery down in Egypt, and so God rescues them. Then at Mount Sinai, God makes a covenant with Israel, like an agreement. And all of the laws that Moses gives to Israel are the terms of that agreement. They're like a constitution. And so some of the laws are about rituals and customs that set Israel apart from the nations. Other laws are about social justice or morality. And by following these, Israel would show the other nations what God is like. Okay, so the rest of the Torah is just a complete list of laws that Moses gives Israel? Mm, no, the rest of the Torah just continues the story. And the 613 commands are only a selection from that original constitution. And even these have been broken up and placed at strategic points within the story. Now pay attention, because you'll see a really clear pattern. Moses gives the first laws to Israel. They don't worship other gods, don't make idols. And then right after that, there's a story of Israel breaking those very laws. Yeah, they worship the golden calf. And so Moses gives some more laws. And then you get more stories of rebellion. More laws, rebellion again, more laws, more rebellion, and you start to see the point. Right, no matter how many laws... They're just going to continue to rebel. So at the conclusion of the Torah's story, Moses gives this final speech to Israel as they prepare to go into their new home. And he tells them, you guys, I know that you're not going to follow all of God's laws. You've proven to me that you're incapable. And Moses says the problem is that their hearts are hard and that they're going to need new transformed hearts if they're ever going to truly follow God's law. So as we enter into Leviticus chapter 17 today... We're going to look at this idea that God's people have all rebelled. So if you ever struggle as a parent with your kids rebelling, let me give you some freedom. God was perfect, and all of his kids rebelled. And yet God loved us enough that he wanted to warn us as any loving parent to keep us from an unhappy ending. And yet there's something in the human heart that rebels against the, the path and instruction of God. So how can we avoid an unhappy ending in our life? God is going to lay out in Leviticus 17 some ways to keep you or warn you early before you end up in that spot. Because what happens is instead of moving toward God's path of love and kindness and joy and peace, we end up taking a step onto another path, and this road has an unhappy ending. And yet while you're on that path to the unhappy ending, and you know this, right? You've had somebody in your life, or you've gotten to some place in your life where you went, well, how did I get here? I was, I was trying to go there. How did I end up over here when I intended to get over there? And then you get to a certain place, and you don't even see it coming. You're suddenly like, you know, oh my goodness, what happened there? And you would say that, what happened? Or to a friend of yours, you say, how did somebody who said integrity was so important 
end up giving up their integrity? How did somebody who said marriage was such a, a core value end up trashing their marriage? How did somebody who said kids are a gift from God have such a poor relationship with their kids? How did this end up with such an unhappy ending? Where you sacrifice the very things you said were valuable. It's the friend that I sat with who was single and said, Hey, I'm living with a woman and we've had a great relationship, but I've fallen in love with her best friend. How would you encourage me to tell her about this new relationship in a godly way? What's even worse is we head down these destructive paths and the whole time we tell ourselves we're following God's will. How does that happen? And here's how. The human heart is a justification machine. The human heart is a rationalization machine. We are Pez dispensers of excuses coming up with reasons to excuse our behaviors. And God wants to rescue us from ourselves and from an unhappy ending. And here's what's worse. And here's the principle I want to look at today. Whether it's marriage and we drift away from our spouse, whether it's kids and we drift away from those connections, whether it's financially, we end up with an unhappy ending with, with certain uh, bad patterns in our giving, bad pan- patterns in our spending, bad pa- patterns in, in saving and thinking that's our security blanket. Whether it's with God, where we once felt close with God, but we slowly drifted away from Him. There's all kinds of roads that take you to unhappy endings. And here's what's worse. While we're on these unhappy roads, here's the principle we'll look at. Happy thoughts won't change roads with unhappy endings. How many times have you seen somebody who got into a path? It was your son, it was your daughter, it was your neighbor, it was your friend, it was your spouse. And as they began on this path, as they were going toward the path that you've seen a hundred other people end up on this path, you said to them the whole time, whoa, 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 this is dangerous, get off that thing. And they say, happy thoughts, I'll be fine. Don't overreact. Don't make a big deal about this. It won't happen to me. And their happy thoughts did not change the road that had an unhappy ending. And we think we can imagine consequences because our intentions are going to somehow override or trump destinations, and they don't. Happy thoughts do not change roads with unhappy endings. And God sees this coming in Leviticus 17. He says, I want to teach my people how to sensitize themselves to the early stages of temptation and how to utilize consequences to get themselves back on track. And here's why I want to share this message with you. I do not want to be somebody's sad story. We all have so many sad stories of the pastor who, the priest who used to, the husband who used to love his wife, the wife who used to prioritize her marriage, the Christian who used to be close to God. I don't want to be somebody's sad story. I don't want you to be somebody's sad story. And Leviticus 17 teaches us how we can catch ourselves early in our wayward process so we don't end up with an unhappy ending being somebody else's sad story. So number one, how do we sensitize ourselves to the early stages of temptation? And this isn't going to become clear till verse 7, so you have to sort of stay with me as we begin here. Number one, when you begin the process of waywardness, it just begins early on. There's not much difference between the right path and the wrong path. You just start to wander barely offside the lines. Just barely outside the lines. You're not doing wrong things. You're just going to wrong places. The Lord said to Moses, Hey, I want you to speak to Aaron and to his sons. 
all the children of Israel, and say to them, this is the thing. This is the thing you need to know. This is the thing you need to apply. This is the thing you need to understand, which the Lord has commanded. Saying, whatever man, anybody of the house of Israel who kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp versus those who kill it outside the camp. And now God is going to make a distinction between when you make a religious sacrifice of an ox or a goat inside the camp, heading toward the tabernacle where God said that's the one place you can make sacrifices, versus people who are going to make their sacrifices outside the camp. Like, what's the big deal? They're making religious sacrifices. Who cares if it's inside the camp or outside the camp? It seems like God's overreacting. It seems like he's making a whole lot of to-do about nothing. Because God sees that the path that begins with sacrificing or killing your sacrifice outside the camp, you're disconnected from community, you're disconnected from his way of doing worship, and it just starts you just barely on another path. And this is what happens when we begin to get on the wrong path. We're not doing anything wrong. I'm doing a religious sacrifice. I just, I'm killing this for God, for crying out loud. And though we're not doing something wrong, we're just not doing it in the right place. We're doing the right thing for the wrong reason. We're doing the right thing at the wrong place. And so that becomes the justification for why we shouldn't make a big deal about it. It's like this. I'm concerned that you're spending a lot of time with somebody from the opposite sex at work, or you've got a trainer who is of the opposite sex. It seems like you guys are more than just training. There's starting to be some disclosure that might be setting you on a path. And the person who's on that path says, oh, stop overreacting. It's just lunch. Does the Bible say anything about not eating lunch? No. No, just lunch. And so the whole time you're on the wrong path, you actually say to yourself, there's nothing wrong with this. Well, that may be true, but there's nothing wise about it either. And so you may not be in the wrong, doing the wrong thing, but you're doing it in the wrong place. And though it may not be look dangerous to you now, it's setting you on a path. And God says there's something key about whether you do your sacrifice inside the camp or outside, but you won't fully understand it to get to verse 7. Stage two, because you sacrificed way outside the camp, away from the tabernacle, you don't bring that sacrifice that you made for God into the door of the temple of the meeting to offer the offering to the Lord before the tabernacle. The principle, we stop bringing ourselves into God's presence. You killed this ox, you killed this lamb, you killed this goat, you got this thing dead, you got its carcass, and you're like... Man, it's a long way to the tabernacle. Seems a little too far. Seems like a bit of a hassle. I'm not sure I want to go all the way over there. You know what? I don't think it matters before God where sacred space is. Whether I go to church or don't, I'm thinking about Him. Whether or not I'm reading the Bible or not, God knows my heart. And so what happens is we just spend less and less time in God's presence. And as we wander away from God, God feels more and more irrelevant, more and more distant, more and more not connected to my life because we're spending less and less time in his presence. And the more time we spend away from his presence, the more we lose track of what's right and wrong. And the folks who started, all they were doing is sacrificing outside the camp. And now they're refusing to bring it or to come into the tabernacle before the Lord. Step three. When you become wise in your own eyes, when you begin to define right and wrong in your own ways, you then lose the ability to discern between right and wrong, and you even lose the ability 
to feel proper guilt. God said that the person who begins to do this is guilty of bloodshed. And it shall be imputed upon him, stained upon him. He will be marked with this guilt that he's walking down a path toward destruction to that man. He shed blood. And the man shall be cut off. We're going to cut off the resources for that person. And he's been stained with his imputation. Let's pause there for a second because that's a weird word. What does the word imputed mean? Well, it's a really deep theological word. And I don't think anywhere in our culture uses the word imputation except for the Bible and the Apple Company. Steve Jobs, early on in his marketing campaign, he said the most important thing we need to know as a company is we're going to be about imputation. And people are like, what in the world kind of phrase is that? Here's what he said in his biography. Jobs emphasized imputation. People form an opinion about a product based on signals that it conveys. People do judge a book by its cover. We may have the best product or the most useful software, but if we present them in a slipshod manner, they will be perceived as slipshod. If we present them in a creative, professional manner, we will impute the desired qualities. Do you remember the first time you opened your iPad or your iPhone? You've heard about it, you haven't seen it, but you're like, look at the way it's packaged. Look at how cool it's all wound up here. And before you saw it, the package imputed to the product value and quality and worth. The packaging imputed a standard of worth to that thing. And God is saying that when you begin to engage in guilty, sinful behaviors... You get imputed or packaged with guilt, and you will not be able to get away from that, even with your excuses, even with your rationalization. Which is why the law couldn't solve our imputation problem. So in Romans, Paul picks up this idea and says, Now it is not written for his sake alone, it was imputed to him. God took the stain, the packaging of our own shame, and put it upon himself. And what was marked to him, or was marked to us, is now marked on him. But also for us, it shall be imputed or packaged to us who believe in him who raised Jesus from the dead, who delivered up us because of his offenses and was raised because of our justification. Here's what he's saying. When you sin, you get packaged with sin, the stain of it. Jesus took our packaging upon himself and he took his packaging of righteousness and gives it to us. And he says, I will take you, knowing you've done things wrong, and offer to package you or impute you with my righteousness. So a story remind me of a couple things my dad did. Think of yourself as stinky socks. You know that there's things, when people look in the laundry room of your life, that aren't right, aren't perfect, aren't the way they should be. And you have a sense that there's things that are not right. And if God was fair with you, there would be fair consequences to your wrongdoing. And at Christmas time, when you pick up a present, you can always tell what the socks are, right? You open them last, maybe. I'm like, oh, yeah, there's just no way to package up socks to make them look good or appealing. Well, this uh, teenager was going under the Christmas tree, and he opened up socks. But his parents had put those socks in an iPhone 6 case. So when he opened the box, it was imputed this was valuable. It was imputed this was going to be worthwhile. 
In the same sense, what happens is God takes us with all of our shame and all of our guilt, and he wraps us up with God's righteousness. He covers our wrongdoing by imputing his packaging to us. This kid's really disappointed his parents would play this cruel joke on him, and he looks under the, the Christmas tree, and he sees another package with his name on it, and it's, I wonder what that could be. Hmm. A cooking pan? Well, you're going off to college now. You need to know how to... No. A, cu- a pan? So I'm disgusted by the packaging. The packaging imputed a lack of quality. It imputed a lack of attention. It imputed a, I don't really want this or need this. And then he opened it, and you can guess what's inside. An iPhone 6. The packaging imputed. And so when we are sinful, we're imputed with the packaging of our guilt. And God offers to exchange packaging so that we can be delivered from shame and guilt and self-hatred because we know Christ took the punishment for that. And now we find our identity in his hope and his righteousness. Now, here's the problem with the human heart. The, the God who loved us and gave us that new identity would be the God we say, oh, my goodness, I want to follow your path. Tell me more. If you would do this for me, I want to trust your way of living life, your way of spending money, your way of forgiving people, your way of making decisions. But the human heart is so broken. It's such a Pez dispenser of excuses that it will say, while it's on a path to destruction, it will have happy thoughts like, well, I know I'm going to heaven anyway. I know I'm a Christian anyway. Jesus loves me anyway, so it doesn't matter how I live. And we just keep marching toward the path of destruction. Using God's grace, not to compel us toward his presence, but to repel us to become wise in our own eyes. So even as Christians, we need to repent of ways that we use his grace to justify our brokenness. So stage three, we lose the ability to feel guilt rather than embracing the new identity we have. But here's where God is so gracious. Even though we have sacrificed outside the camp, even though we're bearing the guilt, he still gives us opportunities to get back on his path, to find grace again, to come back into his presence. He says, so even if you've done the first step wrong, the second step wrong, the third step wrong, I want you not to miss the opportunity, no matter where you are or what you've done or what temptation you've been involved in. There's always an exit ramp back to grace. So to the end that the children of Israel, they still may bring their sacrifices, the ones they did in the wrong place, before the Lord. The ones they did in the open field, they may bring them to the Lord as long as they come to the door of the tabernacle. Come on, I'll forgive you. Come on, we'll get back together. Come on, we'll get close again. And the priest shall... Sprinkle the blood on the altar of the Lord at the door of the tabernacle, and it's going to be a sweet aroma to the Lord when you realize, oh, I was on this destructive path. Oh, that God would still let me come back, still love me, still pursue me. But an unhappy ending occurs when we miss the exit ramps back to grace. We miss the opportunities to come back to Him, and we just keep marching forward. And what happens is we get to verse 7. I told you it become clear here. We end up given over to evil. And what's worse is when we're given over to evil, we're given over to evil, whether it's lust, whether it's greed, whether it's laziness, whether it's finding our identity in our work, there's some idol that has taken over our life. And though we are controlled by evil, we are still deluded into thinking we're doing God's will. 
That's how broken the human heart is. While we're engaging in destruction, we say to ourselves, I know I'm doing what God would want me to do all the way to the end. And God says in verse 7, They shall no more offer their sacrifices to demons. Demons? After whom they have played the harlot. Harlot? This shall be a statute forever for them throughout the generations. How in the world did the people end up sacrificing to demons? One step at a time. And why did God make such a big deal about the open field? And here's why. In the Egyptian culture and the Canaanite culture, they believe in what are called the desert genes. That's where we get the word genie. The desert genes were the desert demons. So when you were out in the wilderness or the desert, and you'd say, man, I'm kind of kind of scared tonight. Kind of worried about my flock tonight. Facing the unknown tonight. Your culture and your background would say, well, here's how you keep yourself safe and how you face the unknown. You offer a sacrifice to the desert genies. Reference in the, in the Quran as well. Satan's referred to as a gene, J-I-N-N. And God so doesn't want his people to give their attention to the gene, the genies, the demons, to find their allegiance and their power and their source and their security. He says, I don't even want you to sacrifice out in the wilderness and open field because then you'll be tempted to give the sacrifices to the desert demons. Which is why he's making such a big deal here because he sees this path leading here. See, at the end of the day, we all sacrifice. We all sacrifice every day to our real God. And the question is, will you sacrifice to the good God or the goat God? And the goat God of Egypt was known as Canaam. And Canaam was the father of fathers. He would be like in the Roman Greek gods, uh, Zeus. And the Canaam, if you look at his face, what does he look like? Huh, he looks like a goat. And so the goat God had been the one they trusted their whole life. And God wanted them not to sacrifice to the goat God. He wanted them to separate, sacrifice to the good God. And so he says, I don't even want you sacrificing goats religiously or oxen anywhere outside the camp. I want you to stay near community, stay near me to keep you off the wrong path or to keep you on the right path. And I think one of the reasons he had his people sacrifice goats, it was a regular reminder, we're killing the goat gods. We're killing the idols in our life. We're sacrificing the things that are more important or could become more important to us than the real God. So God put this discipline in place. Now, where do the demons come from? Well, I told you a little bit. I'll give you a little bit more. He expounds upon this later. Leviticus, he says, when you sacrifice to foreign gods, you're sacrificing to demons. In Deuteronomy, he says, they, the people of God, provoked me to jealousy with their foreign gods, their idols. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons, not to God. Now, isn't that fascinating? That every idol in your life, and idols are almost always good things, your status. I'm defined my worth by my status, my money, my appearance, my performance, people's opinion of me, my reputation, my fame. These are good things. But when you take good things and make them the ultimate things, they become idols, foreign gods. 
And what God is telling us is one of Satan's greatest strategies to destroy you is to take something good. And when you think you're worshiping or finding your value for something good, there's a demonic force using that to destroy your life. And you won't even see it coming that you'll actually be in the clutches of evil and still think that you're basically following God's will. Unless you think this is just the Old Testament, Paul picks this up in Corinthians and says the same thing. Rather, the things which the Gentiles sacrifice to, they're actually sacrificing not to their statue of Zeus or Dionysus or, 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 or statue of Hades. They're actually sacrificing to demons that are behind those gods, not to God. So they think they're sacrificing to God, but they're actually sacrificing to demons. I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. And in Corinthians he says, how you spend your money tells you who your real God is. 1 Corinthians 6, when you have uh, sexual intimacy with temple prostitutes and you think you're re- worshiping God, you're actually getting involved with demonic activity. When you step outside of God's parameters, you think, oh, come on, we're past that, that's so archaic, that's so old school, we're, we're, we're such more free now, we're not under the law. And what happens is you become wise in your own eyes and you march toward evil, not even knowing that you're doing it. And God wants to rescue you and I from ending up with this unhappy ending. So how do you do that? Well, I don't want to start realizing I'm in trouble when I get here. I want to get as close to the line that I'm like, well, I haven't fallen off yet. God says, sensitize yourself to the early stages. Are you starting to color outside the line? Has it been a while since you spent some time with God in His Word, in His presence? Are you feeling close to God these days or have you started to drift away from His presence? Are you spending less and less time with Him? Are you able to properly feel guilt and know how to repent of that and come back into His presence? If you would say those are not regular practices, you need to sensitize yourself to that and say, God, please help me. I don't want to end up at an unhappy ending. And then God gives some real practical advice. If you can sensitize yourself to the early stages of temptation, then you can, as a leader, as a parent, as a grandparent... We get to see God's parenting style here, working with very wayward people. God is going to utilize consequences to help them feel a little pain now before they feel a lot of pain later. And sometimes it's hard, especially in the current culture we're in, where we feel like it's never good to have anybody experience pain. God says, no, 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 no. The very nature of parenting is this. I want my children to associate rebellion with pain. And I'm going to inject some pain into their life now in the short term when they head down this path so they don't end up with a lot of pain later. Here's how he does it. Three points. Number one, whatever man does this, whatever man begins heading in that direction of the house of Israel or strangers who dwell among you, which is basically the Egyptians who chose to be part of the the community of Yahweh, when they offer a burnt sacrifice or an offering and they don't bring it to the door of the tabernacle, they decide to do it on their own out in the open field to offer it to the Lord, the man shall be cut off from among his people. Now, it doesn't show, and most commentators don't believe this is capital punishment or anything. The word cut off is a Hebrew word, karath, which means divine penalty. We're going to cut them off from the resources. And so the community would say, if you're going to do that, you're going to to be cut off from the resources of the community. Which meant you didn't have access to the business of the community. You didn't have access to the relationship of the community. The community said, if you're going to rebel against God... We're not going to subsidize your rebellion. And this is hard stuff. Whether you've got a relative who's an addict, a relative who's a compulsive gambler, and they keep wanting you to bail me out, bail me out, bail me out, bail me out. It is hard, 
hard, hard to figure out where the balance of grace and truth is. I, I can't tell you. The Bible's not exactly clear where that balance is. Is it one more chance of grace and they'll come back? Sometimes, sometimes not. The Bible does say it is appropriate and right that when somebody is on a path of rebellion to say, you know what, I need you to not get bailed out of that financial decision. You need to feel the pain of wasting your money this way. You need to feel the pain of what happens when you give your life over to an addictive behavior. And it is always breaks your heart as you try to figure this out. But the Bible is saying here, it is okay to cut somebody off from the resources that subsidize the rebellion. I was in a series on Hosea years ago, and I talked about this very thing. God says to Hosea, I want you to love Gomer. She's going to be an adulteress. She's going to continue to be unfaithful, but I want you to marry a woman who's unfaithful to you. I want you to love her, but stop giving her money. Do you want me to love her or not? Stop giving her money. You're subsidizing her lifestyle that's going into prostitution. And so after that message that day, I remember... A woman came up to me and said, that was so helpful. I've got a, a child who's headed toward rebellion right now, and I just feel so guilty that it's always inappropriate for me not to give the resources. And I realized I'm subsidizing her rebellion. And I don't know exactly what it looks like, but I'm feeling freedom that I need to not subsidize laziness, subsidize rebellion, subsidize destructive behaviors. And, and that's what God's doing. God's saying, I want to put a little pain now so that you don't feel a little pain later. And the human heart's so wayward that even when you do it right, the human heart just makes another excuse. But God says, I want you to do that. Number two, I want you to utilize consequences by setting your face against certain behaviors. So whatever man, anybody in the house of Israel, or any of the Egyptians or Gentiles who've chosen to be part of the community, who dwell among you, I don't want them to eat blood. Eat blood? Why are you making a big deal about eating blood? It's like a vampire group or something. And for crying out loud, God, why, why is Leviticus even here? And again, here's why. God knows that if you start drinking blood now, that the Egyptian culture and the Canaanite culture use blood for all kinds of crazy stuff. They use it for mysticism. They use it for uh, mystical encounters. They use it for a lot of the weird stuff we've been going through the last couple of weeks. And you're like, oh my goodness, I hope I get a gold star in heaven for going through Leviticus chapter 14, 15, 16. And you'll get a gold star. God, give us all a gold star for going through Leviticus. Nobody else even tries this stuff. But here's the point. God is saying, when you start drinking blood... It ends up being the pathway to demonic activity later. And the principle for us is in the same way, we make these little compromises early. And those little compromises set up standards and patterns of thinking that we end up in a very unhappy, destructive place. So, set your face against certain behaviors as a leader, as a parent. I will set my face against that person who eats blood. And I will cut him off, here's that cutting off the resources again, from among his people. And he gives some reasons why. Here's why blood's so sacred to me, not to be used for these foreign gods. Number one, life of the flesh is in the blood. And I've given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. So number one, long before the scientific revolution, God said, I want you to know how people live. Life comes from their blood. This is revolutionary scientific thinking written by Moses. If you know the story of George Washington, he was bled to death by his doctors. You know the story? They believed in bloodletting at the time. George Washington's getting kind of sick and... So laying there in bed, and, and they believed that the heart made blood. And so if you were sick, you had bad blood. So they would basically cut a vein open, and they would take out a pint of blood of the bad blood, knowing your heart would produce new blood. So George Washington is starting to get a little bit sick and woozy, and the doctors come in, quick, let's take out a pint. Blah, 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 blah. How's he doing? Oh, he's looking worse. You know what that means? 
take out another pint. They took another pint out of George Washington, and ultimately his doctors bled him to death. The whole time thinking they were doing the right thing. Not realizing that the life is in the blood. And it's amazing how truth has consequences. If you believe the right thing, it can take you in the right place. You believe a wrong thing, even sincerely, with happy thoughts, you can end up in a destructive place. And God says, I want you, number one, life is in the blood. Number two, this is so fascinating to me. I have given the blood even to the animals around you so that that blood can be given to the altar to make atonement for your souls. For the blood that makes atonement for the soul is upon them. Therefore, I said to the children, because that blood is for me, and because that blood is for atonement, you're not to drink it. Nor shall any stranger among you drink blood. That was the Gentiles among them. So this is true. If you are a leader and you begin to see someone in your organization begin to gossip, you're starting to sense that gossiping culture beginning, and you're like, well, it's just not deal with it. I've got more going on. Here's what's going to happen. If you don't deal with it early on, set your face against those behaviors, you know what's going to happen in six months or a year. You've seen the culture with everybody gossips about each other and there's division all over the place. Nobody trusts each other. It's destructive for everybody, right? So as a leader, as a parent, you've got to early on set your face against those behaviors. Listen, I heard how you said about the other department. It's okay to not like their decision, but that's not how we address conflict around here. You set your face against gossip, against greed, against self-centeredness, about self-grandizement. You set your behavior against that early. You put a little pain now so we all don't have to feel a lot of pain later. Three. Again, brilliant look at God's parenting strategy here. You get specific. You specifically, as a leader or parent, explain what obedience looks like and what disobedience looks like. And I think as parents, we mess this up a lot. I know I have. It looks like this. I'm giving a speech to Javen or Sierra when they're little. Don't talk to me that way. That's disrespectful. That is totally unacceptable the way you talk to her. You know what I'm saying? I know what you're saying, Dad. Great. So what does it mean to talk disrespectfully? I have no idea. What would it mean to talk respectfully? I have no idea. Because we talk in general platitudes, they don't even know what obedience looks like or disobedience looks like. They just know I did something that made mom and dad mad. Versus taking the time to say, do you notice the difference between the tone when you say it this way versus that way? That's disrespectful. It's okay to disagree with mom and dad. And when you disagree, here's the appropriate way to disagree, using questions, using this kind of a tone. Here's the inappropriate way to disagree. But because we get so busy, and because we are disciplining out of anger and frustration rather than out of love, we don't take the time to get specific. And so our children, our grandchildren, our employees don't really know what obedience looks like in detail because we didn't take the time to describe it. And we don't know what disobedience looks like except that apparently that he was in a bad mood today, my boss. So God's going to go into a lot of detail, which seems seemingly ridiculous, except that in Egyptian gods, you never knew what was acceptable or not. God's going to go into detail because he wants people to know what obedience looks like and doesn't. When's appropriate guilt and when you don't have to feel guilty at all? Let's look how he does it. He says, all right, let's talk about this. So whatever man among you of Israel or strangers among you who hunts and catches an animal and may be eaten, he shall pour out its blood and cover it in the dust. He goes, so guys, what we're talking about here is not hunting. You can hunt. I gave you animals for your own nourishment. But here's what I want you to do. When you're out hunting and you kill an animal out in the open field, not for a religious sacrifice, 
I just want you to take the blood and pour it back in the ground. As a reminder, this blood belongs to me, and the blood would be for atonement of, of sins if it wasn't for the nourishment I'm eating now. That's not sin. No guilt there. You don't have to feel any weirdness there. Enjoy the animals as you're hunting them to eat. But to keep you from going down a path toward all the weird vampire stuff that happened in, 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 in Canaan, pour the blood out and make this a sacred moment that I'm trusting God. Very, very specific. He then goes on. He says, now, if you come across another animal out in the, out in the field and it's died naturally or it was torn apart by some beasts, it's also okay to eat. You'll be ritually unclean, meaning you can't come into the tabernacle until after you've washed your clothes and bathed in water, but you're fine. No guilt, no shame, no problem there. That's totally acceptable. That's not what I'm talking about when I'm talking about a religious sacrifice to the genie. So he's very specific. This is okay, this is not. Don't worry about this. No guilt here. Ritual uncleanness here. Take a bath. You're fine to come back to tabernacle. Very, very detailed explanations. And if he does not wash or bathe his body, then you are bringing guilt if you come into sacred space. So here again is God seemingly like, what's with all the details? Oh my goodness, it's so ridiculous. But the principle really speaks to how we need to, in our own lives, set our face against certain behaviors, cut off and not subsidize rebellion, and be very specific about what obedience and disobedience looks like, and sadly at times let people face the consequences of them choosing to go down certain paths. And the whole time the principle comes back to, and along that path to destruction, happy thoughts aren't going to change roads with unhappy endings. Just not. So here's where I want to end. We all sacrifice to the one who truly owns your heart. The human heart is designed to sacrifice. You're currently sacrificing. So if you want to know who really owns your heart, is it the good God or the goat God? It's a real simple way to figure out who your real God is. Where is it easy for you to sacrifice? What's the easiest check for you to write? What's the easiest thing for you to put on your calendar? What is the instinctual way of you giving your energy? That is probably your real God. So the question is, if you examine the place you sacrifice easiest, does that tell you that the God of the Bible really owns your heart? Or does it tell you that upgrading owns your heart? Or does that tell you that your, your role as a, a mom or dad controls your heart? Or that your savings account controls your heart? Where you sacrifice always reveals who owns your heart. And Jesus shows up in the book of Colossians and does something amazing. He says, I want to own your heart. And that's why I came to die for your waywardness to pay for your wrongdoing, and to warn you about unhappy endings, to forgive you and package you with my imputation. But more than that, it says in Colossians, that it was at that moment that Jesus came out of the grave and was raised from the dead, that it says he grabbed the devil. He disarmed principalities and powers. And so the demonic forces that would try and destroy you, destroy your life, Jesus says the power of resurrection is that he defanged the devil. He put on display the demonic activities. And if you and I will apply and acclimate the power of God that was given at resurrection, we don't have to listen to the voices of demonic temptation. We don't have to listen to those temptations. We can stay close to the one who owns our heart. I don't want you to be a sad story. But more than that, I want you to be a good story. A story that despite difficulty, despite a broken world, despite a rebellious nature and heart that's in us, 
God can be glorified in any and every situation when we say, I want to sacrifice my life, my heart, my will, my strength, my pocketbook, my calendar to the God who's not the goat God. He's the good God who loves me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these weird but wise words from Leviticus. A reminder that you want to rescue us from ourselves because you love us and you want us to walk in a path of righteousness. That you came that we may have life and life more abundantly and rescue us from the thief who's come to kill and to destroy. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here next week. We'll go more into detail on temptation next week in chapter 18.